calling all conscious achievers who are seeking more community and connection, I've got an invitation for you. Join me at this year's Summit of Greatness this September 7th through 9th in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio to unleash your true greatness. This is the one time a year that I gather the greatness community together in person for a powerful transformative weekend. People come from all over the world and you can expect to hear from inspiring speakers like Inky Johnson, Jaspreet Singh, Vanessa Van Edwards, Jen Sincero, and many more. You'll also be able to dance your heart out to live music, get your body moving with group workouts, and connect with others at our evening socials. So if you're ready to learn, heal, and grow alongside other incredible individuals in the greatness community, then you can learn more at lewishouse.com slash summit 2023. Make sure to grab your ticket, invite your friends, and I'll see you there. There are a number of risks to not getting enough sleep. Deficits in learning, deficits in the immune system, reduction in testosterone and estrogen in both men and women. So disruption of hormones, disruption of gut microbiome. Until you are sleeping long enough and deeply enough, 80% of the nights of your life, you are functioning suboptimally. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits like four times membership rewards points that adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year and up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is a message for anyone with high LDLC or bad cholesterol who has had or is at risk of having a cardiovascular adverse event. Merck is studying an investigational medication to see whether it may help lower the risk of future cardiovascular adverse events. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death worldwide. And in the United States alone, there are over 73 million people living with high LDLC. To learn about whether you may qualify, visit CoralReefStudies.com now. Again, that is C-O-R-A-L-R-E-E-F-S-T-U-D-I-E-S dot com. So many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes, it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a busy day and we just stocked our office fridge with international delight cold foam creamer and it never misses the team's favorite flavor so far is the caramel macchiato you just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee and voila you've got an incredible cold foam coffee no frothing fancy machines or mess required international delight cold foam creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom the best part it works on both hot and iced coffee it comes in three foaming delicious 
flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. Welcome to today's special episode. Over the last 1,300 plus episodes, there have been so many impactful interviews that I've been lucky enough to have, and I always like to reflect on some of the most powerful. And this episode was one that resonated with most of you guys in the past, and I'm excited for the value it's going to bring you today as well. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Sleep is something that I feel like when I grew up, I was told, sleep when you're dead. You know, the athlete, the business mentality was like, broke people, you know, uh, sleep a lot. You know, those who are making money are going out and working, burning the midnight oil. But then later in my 30s, I realized how important sleep was for me to recover, to remember, to have uh, emotional regulation throughout the day and not be reactive and defensive. So can we break this down and your thoughts about sleep and how you frame this, some of the the research and the science that you've studied around this and what we should be thinking about around sleep? Sure. So sleep is the fundamental layer of mental and physical health. If there's one thing that we should all be doing is working toward sleeping long enough and deeply enough, 80% of the time. Okay. I think that 80% is a good goal yeah. because things happen, yeah. right? Travel, travel happens, kids happen, illnesses The weekend, happen. you're going out or whatever, yeah. 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 Until you are sleeping long enough and deeply enough, 80% of the nights of your life, you are functioning suboptimally. And, and what are, what are, what's the biggest risk then if we're not getting enough sleep? Okay, so there are a number of risks to not getting enough sleep. Deficits in learning, deficits in the immune system, reduction in testosterone and estrogen in both men and women. So disruption of hormones, disruption of gut microbiome, increased cancer risk. There are a bunch of things. The severity of those things depends on a lot of other things too. Uh Um, Prior health, uh, other health conditions, Uh uh, context, age, um, occupation. You know, if you're not getting enough sleep and you're a a high-rise construction worker, it's different than if you're an office worker. Okay, so... um, we need to sleep enough. Now, what's enough sleep? This is an interesting question. Enough sleep has been argued it's six hours. Other people, it's seven hours. Other people, it's eight hours. It's basically waking up without an alarm clock and feeling rested. Mm. Insomnia is a, actually a medical term nowadays. And insomnia is essentially diagnosed as falling asleep during the middle of the day due to lack of sleep at nighttime. Oh. Okay, but many people who are, who are having trouble sleeping at night are not falling asleep during the middle of the day. They're dealing with grogginess or crankiness or other effects of having fragmented sleep. What are the, what are the main causes of not being able to fall asleep? Is it rumination? Is it traumas that you're holding on to? Is it arguments? Is it self-doubt or insecurities? Is it you nap too much? Is it the foods you ate too late? Like, What would you say are the main causes of not being able to fall asleep. All of the above. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the the primary one is a failure to turn off your thoughts. Okay. And I think that might provide a good anchor point for us to talk about some protocols. Really, a excellent night's sleep begins in the morning 
I talked about this on the previous episode, so I won't go into detail, but everyone should get as much bright light in their eyes, ideally mm-hmm. from sunlight first thing in the morning, 10 to 30 minutes outside, depending on how bright it is. Eyeglasses or contact lenses are fine. Don't wear sunglasses if you can do it safely. If you wake up before the sun rises, turn on bright lights, then go outside once the sun rises. If you have no access to sunlight, use a daytime simulator or similar, like a ring light, and get that light in your eyes. Okay. So that's all of that in a compact form. Caffeine. You can inhibit falling asleep with caffeine. You have to figure out when your threshold is. For me, I can drink caffeine up until about three, even four o'clock in the afternoon and sleep like a baby. And still sleep well. Yes. And Matt Walker, our good friend Matt Walker, would say that my sleep isn't as good as it it would be had I cut caffeine out earlier. By by like 11 or 12 a.m. Right. And and I... I want to acknowledge, you know, Matt is the Michael Jordan of sleep science, yes. and so I'm not going to... You're the LeBron James. Uh, yes. I, well, no, no, and, and in fair, th- thank you for the, the compliment, but uh, but no, I'm not. Um, I know a lot of the science and the protocols, but, yeah. but that's Matt's wheelhouse, yeah. and so um, if he says something, it's true, and if I say something and, and our opinions conflict, it's likely to be something that the data are still emerging, mm-hmm. or in, in that case, default to, to Matt, gotcha. uh, being correct, because I, yeah. I just out of uh, due respect for his expertise. So caffeine, you know, for some people, they can have a two o'clock espresso, 2 p.m. espresso, some people it's 4 p.m. Some people can drink caffeine at 8 p.m. and fall asleep, but there I would say mm. um, it's problematic because you're disrupting the architecture of sleep and, yes. and the brain waves associated with sleep, the chemicals and so forth. So get that morning light, Cut your caffeine off at the time that allows you to fall asleep. That morning light also sets a timer on your melatonin rhythm. Mm-hmm. So you have this gland in your brain called the pineal gland. That pineal is the source of melatonin. Melatonin makes you sleepy, but it does not keep you asleep. Okay. Melatonin starts to rise in the late evening and continues into the night and then eventually tapers off. This is naturally occurring melatonin release, not supplemented melatonin release. The fastest way to slam melatonin to the pavement and eliminate it in your system is to look at bright light for, I hate to tell you this, even a few seconds. So... You mean at night? At night, at night is typically when melatonin rises. Yes. It's when it's released in the bloodstream and when it has this effect of making us sleepy. It does a number of other things you too. You want more melatonin at night, is right, right? You do. And yes. if you wake up in the middle of the night or it's eight o'clock and you decide you want to go to bed at nine or it's nine o'clock, you want to go to bed at 10, you go into the bathroom and you flip on the bright lights, your melatonin levels just got crushed down to so zero. So having lights on is a, the worst thing you can do. Yes. And it doesn't matter if it's blue light, red light, purple light, green light, bright lights inhibit melatonin wow. very acutely. And therefore you want to avoid exposure to bright lights at night if your goal is to be asleep. Mm. So the simple rule that governs all this stuff is when you want to be alert, get bright light in your eyes, ideally from sunlight. So that's true in the morning and throughout the day. And when you want to be sleepy or asleep, avoid bright light in your eyes. Now, many home environments don't allow you to have zero lights. And that's not actually necessary. You can just dim the lights in the evening. Ideally, you also avoid overhead lights because the neurons in the eye that trigger this melatonin suppression uh, and so forth, they reside in an area of the eye that views upper visual space. So okay. you could have desk lamps or mm-hmm. um, and just dim those down. If you're going to work on a screen, dim it way down. Will blue blockers help? Yes, but if the light is bright enough, they it's still gonna it, go you're still going to yeah. inhibit melatonin release. So how bad is watching TV at night? Uh, if the TV isn't too bright, 
and, and it's you, farther away. Farther it's not away. Like when you're, yeah, and you're, and maybe you wear blue blockers. Yeah, and or or I mean, some people are go take this to the extreme. They wear sunglasses. I think that's a little extreme. Now, candlelight and moonlight, surprisingly, doesn't seem to block melatonin. Now, maybe a really bright moonlit night, full moon, can you know the lunacy associated with the full moon might actually be due to a uh, suppression of melatonin and an increase in mm-hmm. in alertness. So those are the the things as it relates to light. Yes. Then there's this issue of people who have trouble staying asleep. So they can fall asleep fine, but they wake up at two or three in the morning. I happen to do this. If I go to bed around 10.30, I tend to wake up around three and I use the restroom. Yeah, I tend to drink a lot of fluids and I have Uh, to use the restroom. This was true at every age. This is not just some aging related thing. (laughs) Um, That's fine. I just keep the lights dim. Right. And you use the bathroom and then you go back to sleep. Fall back to sleep. Very normal, very healthy. One of the best things I ever did for my sleep was to keep my phone out of the room so that when I wake up at three in the morning, I just didn't start scrolling the, the newspapers is typically what mm-hmm. I would read online. Gotcha. And then you're just waking up your brain, not yeah. just by the light, but by the content. And, you know. You're activating it again as opposed yeah, to coming back to sleep. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes there's a comment and they're like, why is this? You know, your thinking is not very good in the middle of the night. Uh-uh. The other thing is you want to keep the room cool. So in order to fall asleep, your body has to undergo a drop of in temperature of one to three degrees. Mm. There are a couple of ways to accomplish this. One is keeping the room cool. The other is to, um, and that's ideal actually, because you can put a, a, a hand or a, or a foot out. We actually lose a lot of our heat through what's called our glabrous skin. So the palms of our hands, the bottoms of the feet. I always put my feet out of the sheets mm-hmm. and just let them feel the cool air. That's right. And that's a great way to cool off your core body temperature. You're probably doing that un- unconsciously in right. your sleep as well. If the room were too warm, the only way for you to cool off would be for you to put your hand in a bucket of cold water. Mm. And generally people don't have that accessible. And then you're going to go pee if you're doing that too. (laughs) Right, exactly. And then of course there are all these products nowadays of, you know, things that cover, yeah, yeah, that cover, that cool the the bed. Um, I'm supposed to try one of these soon. I haven't tried one yet. I tend to just keep the room cool. Cool, yeah. And What do you keep it at? I keep it around 67, 65. Uh, that's a little cooler than what I do. I put it at about 67, 68. Okay. Um, but I tend to wake up hot in the middle of the night, like, ah, throw, throw the comforter <laughs> off um, and go put some cold water uh, on my face. Wow. Um, so don't obsess over waking up too much. And if you do, try and stay away from screens. Or if, um, you know, some people will read a book dim light again, yeah. uh, and then falling back asleep. Some people are waking up at two or three because they are going to bed too late. Their melatonin has run out. So imagine that you're, mel- that you're naturally somebody who should go to bed early, around nine. But we all have this ability to push forward and stay awake if we have to. Much mm-hmm. easier to stay awake than to force yourself to go to sleep. Early. Yes. Very yes. hard to force yourself to go to sleep. So let's say your system, you start releasing melatonin around 9 p.m., but you stay up until 11. Then you get into bed, you fall asleep around 11.30, and at 3 in the morning you suddenly wake up. Well, that's because your melatonin tapered off, Mm. and there's a wakefulness that's occurring. And so ideally you would start going to bed earlier. Now, there's a lot of discussion out there about so-called chronotypes. So night owls, morning people, people that follow a more typical schedule. Typical would be going to sleep somewhere between 10.30 and 11.30, waking up somewhere between 6.30 and 8. Then there are the people that like to go to bed at 2 a.m., sleep till 10. And then there are people that like to go to bed at 8 and wake up at 4. Mm -hmm. Huge variation out there. (laughs) 
it tends to change across the lifetime. Yeah, your season of life or years. That's yeah. right. And adolescents and teenagers tend to stay up later and, and want to sleep in. And there's actually some evidence that they can learn better if they are allowed to to use that schedule, but most schools won't adhere to that schedule. You gotta wake up at six and go yeah. to school at eight or whatever, yeah. yeah. Once you enter adult life, you're generally somebody who's gonna have to learn how to go to bed early and, and wake up early, or at least wake up early. Mm -hmm. Now naps, you should feel comfortable, the data say, naps, you should feel comfortable napping for 90 minutes or less at any point throughout the day, as long as it doesn't interfere with your nighttime sleep. Mm -hmm. So some people like me, I love naps, but it doesn't interfere with my nighttime sleep. It doesn't. Does not. So you can take a sixty-minute nap. Generally, twenty to forty-five minutes. And then you you fully fall asleep, or you're kind of like awake and just resting. Yeah, I can fall asleep anywhere, anytime. In like I can a fall minute? asleep at a gun range. Yeah, it's um, what? It's in, it's in. Can I, you sleep sitting up too, like this? Oh yeah, playing That's a any, gift. anywhere. That's a it, gift. It is, although it 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 could reflect that I'm pushing my system a little too hard. Oh. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it is a it is useful at times. It's incredible. Man. It so is you can useful. fall asleep right on a plane or anywhere, leaning against a oh my you know, gosh yeah, in a subway station I, and anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> if I need sleep, I'm going down. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So the um, the other thing is that during sleep, a number of things happen, and we can talk about slow wave sleep and REM sleep. But one of the most important physiological functions of sleep is to clear out some of the cellular debris that accumulates throughout the day. The cellular debris creates cognitive deficits, it actually may be related to the aggregation of proteins and things that relate to dementia and uh -huh. Alzheimer's. It's the so-called glymphatic system. The lymphatic system is a system of moving through immune cells and clearing out of debris from the body. The glymphatic system is a kind of a, a equivalent system uh, that exists in the brain that involves so-called glial cells, which are support cells, but also do many things actively. They're not just doing support. The glymphatic system is like a washout of the mm -hmm. brain's debris. And that system seems to function best when feet are slightly elevated above the brain. There's some interesting data from University of South Carolina coming out now that show that if you can get your ankles elevated a little bit higher than your chin, that's great. So when you're sleeping. While you're sleeping. What's it do for you? it increases the glymphatic clearance. Ah. And there are some data that it can improve function of the brain. The, the studies that are happening now that I'm aware of, I'm in touch with that group, are mainly geared towards people that have had head injuries. So concussion and TBI of various kinds. Mm. But they also ha are seeing interesting effects in typical folks that don't have um, any traumatic brain injury. So I put a, a pillow underneath my ankles when I fall asleep and to get a little bit of that elevation. And yeah. then during the day, if ever you can't get a nap, or you are going to get a nap, put your ankles up on the couch and lie down on the floor. That that itself can um, get some of the clearance of the glymphatic system. And that system. helps you sleep better or it helps you just clean out the system? It helps your brain function better when you wake up from sleep. Interesting. Yeah, that, that, That's what the data are starting to that's show. Cool. I, you know, some of the things I, I described, like the light viewing, it is baked into the neuroscience literature, it, hundreds of papers, yes. published papers. Some of the things like the glymphatic system is kind of cutting edge, it's, it's on the way, yeah. but because the safety margins of raising your, your ankles are, are so, so large, I mean, there's nothing dangerous about that. Sure. Um, it's how, long of, do you, how long do you need to do it for to get the benefits? Oh, I think these are immediate benefits. Like because two minutes or 10 minutes? Oh, or no, you're doing this the whole night that you're asleep, your ankles you. are elevated. If you wake up and you happen to kick the pillow out, it's not the end of the world. But but the idea is that you don't want to be sleeping with your head above 
your ankles either. There is some evidence that when people travel on planes and they're sleeping in chairs, that that's not equivalent to the kind of sleep they'd get when they're lying right. flat. Interesting. Independent of all the other things that are happening. And we know this because there are great sleep labs at Stanford, uh, School of Medicine, at UPenn, back east and elsewhere, mm -hmm. where people actually go into a clinic and sleep either you know, upright or, or at different and angles. They track it. And they're looking at all this at the, at the level of data. Okay, so here's one for you. What's the best uh, position to sleep on your back, on your side, on your stomach? Ah, great question. And it really truly depends. And it probably depends on how hot you run. Mm -hmm. So I tend to run really warm. A lot of the cooling of the body occurs from the palms and bottoms of the feet, but also from the upper back and scapulae because we accumulate what's called brown fat there. It's not the blubbery fat that's under the skin. Right. It's a, like a furnace. Actually, you can increase the density of brown fat by going into cold water repeatedly for you know mm. one to three minutes several times each week. Yes. It means your furnace actually burns hotter. It allows you to be in cold temperatures more comfortably. Some really beautiful data just published on this. So I don't like to sleep on my back because I start heating up. Start sweating. That's right. So I tend to sleep on my side. I yeah. sleep in that, what is that? Um, it's like soldier <laughs> position. You know yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, there are some people that have shoulder issues and yes. then they can't do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm relatively flexible through my shoulders, not super flexible. So I can do that. It really depends. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if you're sleeping on your stomach, <laughs> how do you elevate your ankles? You right. know, it starts becoming a little bit, um, you know, we are not just science experiments. Mm -hmm. And so... You have, to, you have to assume that you're not going to get everything exactly right. But keeping the room cool, keeping the cool being under a warm enough blanket, but then extending a hand or an ankle out so that you could cool off during the middle of the night, that's going to be good. Keep the room dark, although complete pitch black doesn't seem to be as good as having a little bit of light somewhere in the room. Okay. But you don't want a bright blue light or red mm -hmm. light anywhere in the room that's going to wake you up. Some right. people like me have very thin eyelids, exceedingly thin eyelids. Some huh. people have very thick eyelids. So some people are more bothered by a light in the room than others. It really varies. Yeah. So you have to just tune things to your particular environment. I'm curious about the neuroscience before you go to sleep. How do we set our minds up to, you were saying before about it's, a lot of people, it's hard for them to sleep because they can't shut their mind off. Right. Is there something we should be thinking before we shut it off to set our sleep up for success mentally and then to really build into the next day where we wake up feeling like clear-minded and without this brain fog where we have more motivation, where we have more uh, you know, energy and excitement towards the next day and then doing that in a pattern every night. Is there any science around that? Is it like listening to a hypnosis? That could script? be very helpful which will help you clean, clean out whatever's going on through the day and get clear and ready for the next day, but also fall asleep so you're not thinking about it. Uh, you know, is there anything that can help you have better dreams so that you sleep better? Like, what have you found there in the neuroscience? Yeah, so, the, um, um, so glad you asked this question. There's some really interesting data from a guy named Chuck Charles Zeisler, who is at Harvard Med. He's done beautiful studies on sleep in humans for many decades and a really uh, fantastic physician and researcher. And they observed something interesting, which is that about 90 minutes or so before your natural bedtime, there's a spike in alertness, planning and almost anxiety that, that all people undergo. And it's a normal, healthy pattern. The idea, and it's a just so story because we don't really know, I nor Chuck Zeisler nor anyone else was consulted at the design phase, as we say, but we assume this, was, this came about because Prior to going to sleep, we need to shore up everything for safety. We need to, 
you know, uh, lock things down, make sure everything's in its place because we are very vulnerable in mm-hmm. sleep. Nowadays, this would might manifest as, you know, you're, you need to go to bed at 1030 because you have to get up at six, et cetera. And then right around 830 or nine, you start finding yourself running around doing various things. Many people worry about that and they think, oh, I'm really stressed because I actually need to go to sleep and here I am wide awake. It tends to subside very quickly. Mm-hmm. So just the knowledge that that's a normal, healthy spike in alertness and activity, I think can help a number of people. I want to make sure I mention that. Yeah. The other thing is preparing the mind, as you said, turning thoughts off. Turning thoughts off is a skill. We've talked before, uh, gosh, almost a year or more uh, now uh, ago about yoga nidra, yes. which is... Uh, there are many, many Yoga Nidra scripts available on YouTube, free of cost. The ones I particularly like are the ones by Kamini Desai, um, K-A-M-I-N-I-D-E-S-A-I, Kamini Desai. I just really like her voice. I don't know Kamini, never met her. These are free scripts. They're uh, Yoga Nidra scripts that last about 20 minutes. They involve some breathing, mm-hmm. some meditation type stuff, They but they teach you to turn your thoughts off. Mm which is really wonderful because a lot of people, they just get stuck in this rumination. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. If you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, is there an ideal protocol prior to sleep? It depends because some people find they have their greatest clarity after the kids are asleep yeah. and they're sitting there. So I wouldn't say don't work or do work. You know, you do want to avoid strong stimuli before sleep. So do you really want to watch, uh, you know, a politically charged or right. a violent movie right before sleep? Well, that depends on how triggered you tend to be by politics or violence. Some people aren't triggered, other people are. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that aside, you, you don't want to go to bed either too hungry or too full because that mm. can inhibit your sleep. So for most people, that's going to be finishing your last bite of food about two hours before bedtime. But I confess there are days when I work or work or work and, you know, arrive at a place, a hotel, order some food and just, you know, eat a massive meal and then pass out. Right. Again, 80-20. Try and get it right 80% of the time. What's what, what's harmful of being too hungry or being too full before you go to bed? You'll have trouble falling asleep and, wake, and you'll wake up in the middle. Both extremes. Both extremes. And I, I'm not a nutritionist or nutrition expert, but what I've found works for me personally is I tend to I fast until about noon-ish mm-hmm. each day. And then my lunch is low carb. So I tend to eat you know some grass-fed meat, some some veggies, maybe some starches if I trained and a piece of fruit. If Mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't. And then I also have an afternoon snack, but then in the evening, my meals tend to be relatively low in meat and protein because, and higher in starches, which 
activate the tryptophan system and the serotonin mm -hmm. system, which makes it easier to fall asleep. You can repack glycogen during the night so you can do muscular work the next day. Right. Training of any kind, but also thinking. Your brain uses glucose. Sure, sure. So at night, I tend to eat pastas and vegetables and rice and um, risottos and things like that. Not in huge volumes, but I tend to eat less protein. It's not that I don't eat any, but I don't tend to eat mm -hmm. big steaks right before going to sleep. Yeah. Again, 80-20, 80% of the time. So foods, certain foods stimulate the neurotransmitter pathways like serotonin that facilitate the transition to sleep. Now, what could you take? Well, that's a, some people will drink chamomile tea. Chamomile tea is enriched in something called apigenin. Apigenin is, I take it in supplement form, 50 milligrams of apigenin, but it's really just chamomile extract. And it tends to make you a little drowsy. And many people experience excellent sleep when they take apigenin mm. and normally they struggle with it. Again, with supplements, I don't have a relationship to an apigenin company or anything like that. I want to be clear. And also supplements, check with your doctor, of course, all that. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I don't recommend is that people take melatonin. Don't take melatonin. I am not a fan of melatonin for the following reasons. First of all, melatonin does many more things besides just cause the transition to sleep. It also is involved in regulating some of the other hormones like testosterone, estrogen, ah. and so on. Most of those studies are animal studies, but some of the data on humans indicate that as well. In kids, melatonin is one of the hormones responsible for suppressing puberty, and then melatonin rhythms change, and then puberty happens. So, you wow. know, if your kid has already been taking melatonin, uh, I wouldn't be alarmed, but just be aware. And if you talk to your physician, most physicians aren't really aware of this. I would talk to an endocrinologist, frankly. Also, most math, um, Matt Walker would also um, support this statement because I'm lifting it from him. So, um, which is that most melatonin supplements contain anywhere from 15% of what's listed on the bottle to 300% of what's listed on the bottle. The regulation of supplements is, is an issue. Wow. Even from a trusted brand, if you were to take say three milligrams or six milligrams of melatonin, it's a pretty standard dose out there, you are taking supra-physiological levels of melatonin. Your system does not see those levels of melatonin. So chamomile not, tea is okay. Chamomile tea or apigenin, um, it's a little hard to find, but apigenin is a great, it's chamomile extract, essentially. There are a few other things. Again, margins for safety will depend. Magnesium threonate, which is T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, threonate, um, you know, 140 to milligrams or so of magnesium threonate. Again, you could just shop for cost. I don't want to name brands, even though sure. my podcast is associated with one. I don't want this to become about that. The magnesium threonate, many people take in 30 to 60 minutes before sleep with apigenin. Many people find great benefit. Yes. I am not a fan of taking serotonin or serotonin precursors. 5-HTP, um, L-tryptophan prior to sleep for the following reason. The architecture of sleep, as Matt probably um, discussed here, I need to watch that episode. Um, he's so good. Uh, mm. Includes a lot of slow wave sleep early in the night. Re Pair and recovery of motor uh, circuits in the brain and muscular tissue and connective tissue that might have been worked with or damaged during the day. And the second half of sleep tends to be enriched in so-called REM sleep, rapid mm. eye movement sleep, more dreams that are very intense, etc. Right. That architecture is exquisitely controlled by levels of serotonin at one point and not having serotonin at others, having acetylcholine release being very tuned to particular times mm. in the night. When you start messing with the serotonin system, 
you disrupt that. So my experience with 5-HTP, I took it to go to sleep or L-tryptophan is I fall asleep like I got clubbed over the head by a grizzly bear. And then I wake up an hour and a half later and I cannot fall asleep for uh, me for two days. Wow. Very intense. Now, I'm pretty um, sensitive to these things, but that's why I'm not a fan of those. And I rely on magnesium 3 and 8, apigenin. And some people also take theanine. But for the mm. time being, I think magnesium 3 and 8 and apigenin or chamomile are great. If people don't want to take supplements, chamomile tea is a terrific um, mild good. sedative to yeah. just kind of turn off some of that thinking. Relax. Okay. Yeah. And what about working out and sleep? Okay. How, yeah. You work out in the morning, afternoon, night. How does that affect the sleep when you work out and how you work out? Yeah. Well, I want to be um, fair to the fact that people have different schedules and different constraints yes. and that work, you know, getting that 150 to 180 minutes of zone two cardio per week is essential. People should be doing some resistance training regardless of, of goals or um, uh, in order to maintain muscle because it's so important to avoid injury and maintain metabolism, etc. So you need to get it in somehow. But you then have to ask yourself what's happening around that workout. So are you going into a brightly lit gym at 11 o'clock at night and blasting music and are you drinking three espresso right. or an energy drink before right. you go? You're going to be awake. You're going to have a hard time going to sleep. It's not just the workout, it's the context around the workout. Yes. My preference is always to work out as early in the day as possible. That's my preference. I don't always accomplish that. We, people should also know that if you work out at the same time for three or four days, your body builds in an anticipatory circuit. You will feel an energy increase a few minutes before that workout. Mm. So if you are working out at 10 p.m. at night and you're finding it hard to go to sleep, if you can shift that workout earlier in the day, you will soon become a morning person. Mm -hmm. You won't. It might not be this as natural as somebody who naturally wakes up at four thirty or five in the morning. But let's say you're a, you want to get on an earlier schedule. You want to get that morning light, but also force yourself to work out in the morning. And then by the second or third day of doing that, you will start to feel more alert as you arrive to the workout yeah. because there are these anticipatory circuits. That's cool. Working out late at night, some people say cardio okay, but not weight. Some people say, I, I think it's highly individual. And I don't think there's ever been a really good study addressing that. Mm -hmm. Regularity is key. I think for me, the best times to work out are three hours after waking up, 11 hours after waking up, just based on body temperature rhythms, mm. or immediately, like get up and just put the shoes yeah. on and just go. And I don't tend to do that last thing very often these days. I tend to wake up and move through the morning a little bit like a lazy bear, yeah. get sunlight, and then you know, wait for my caffeine, caffeine. <laughs> but every time I do that early morning workout, I feel much better and more alert all day. And you and, fall asleep probably easily. And I fall asleep much more easily. And there, the other thing you can do to fall asleep is, this might seem a little counterintuitive, I said that you need to lower your body temperature by one to three degrees. You can take a hot shower or do a sauna, which you would think, well, it heats you up. But when you actually heat the surface of the body, your brain cools off your core mm -hmm. body temperature, unless you stay in that heat for a very long time. So you take a brief, uh, you know, I want to say how long people should shower. shower. Get, get in the sauna or whatnot, and then, or a hot shower, and then, and, you know, maybe rinse off with some cool water for, not cold, but cool water, lukewarm water for 10 seconds and dry off and get into bed. Your body temperature will drop. If you get into an ice bath or a cold shower, you'll stay awake. You are it's a, it's very jolting. So I don't recommend people do that late in the day unless they want to be awake for some reason at night. 
But the other thing is when this is a little counterintuitive, but my colleague at Stanford, uh, Craig Heller, works on thermal regulation. If you are want to cool down and you put a cold towel or ice around your neck, you're cooling the surface of the body just like you would put a cold pack on a thermostat. What's going to happen? Your brain's going to start to heat you up. Mm. So I would avoid cold exposure right before sleep, wow. especially if it's very stimulating, like to the point cold enough that you get that adrenaline bump. So cold air is is key to drop the, the temperature down. Keeping the room cool. Cool. Yeah, but you don't not want like that really- Not like an icebox where you're shivering. Exactly, yeah. the acute cold exposure, as we call it, of an ice bath or something. Mm -hmm. Rather, uh, a, a sauna, or a lot of people don't have access to sauna, maybe a warm, a warm or hot shower before sleep. But people tend to be very specific about this too. Some people like to shower in the morning, some people in the evening. I. I like to shower whenever I have an opportunity to shower. Right. Uh, you know, generally I try and shower after I work out because if I don't, yeah. uh, everyone suffers. Right. But the, um, <laughs> but I think that the, if people don't have access to a sauna, that that hot shower or warm shower before sleep can be very beneficial mm -hmm. because the body will naturally start to dump heat and cool off as you get into bed. Gotcha. And then in terms of the actual architecture of sleep and dreams. Mm -hmm. With with dreams, you know, that dreams in the beginning of the night tend to be kind of mundane and seem kind of ordinary, and the dreams toward morning tend to be more intense. Right. This is the you wake up and you remember like what just happened. That's right. Not what happened in hours before. Right. And the the early part of the night, in very broad strokes, the early part of the night tends to be when we release growth hormone, when we tend to mm. um, repair motor circuits and and damaged tissues, and there's a real lack of emotional context to those dreams. Now, mm -hmm. the dreams toward morning tend to have much more emotional enrichment and be very intense. Um, often if people visual, see visual hallucinations, that's in the, the so-called REM sleep dreams. Why is that? It's interesting. The, uh, <laughs> great question. The, it, well, two things. You're also paralyzed during REM sleep. You're a, you can breathe, but you cannot move. And there's this interesting thing that happens in sleep where when we are in REM, rapid eye movement sleep, we have high degree of emotionality of dreams, but we are unable to release adrenaline. This is very much like trauma treatment, wow. where there's a desensitization. You're coupling an intense experience to an inability for your body to move or to have a reaction to that. Now, if you suddenly wake up, which I often do, you'll notice that the adrenaline kicks in. But this is kind of like therapy in your sleep or trauma release in your hmm. sleep. And if you deprive people selectively of this rapid eye movement sleep, a number of bad things happen. But one of the primary things that happens that's bad is that when you don't get enough REM sleep, you are more emotionally labile during the day. Little things bother you more. You feel more irritable. Yeah. yeah, anytime I see a comment on, on Instagram to me or anyone else and someone seems kind of prickly, like, well, I always just think to myself, I'm not getting enough REM sleep. Wow. Yeah, or I tell myself <laughs> that yeah. because I want to have some empathy for them. Sure, that sure. They're, they're just not neurologically up to snuff, meaning they're not working as well as they could. Now, there are other reasons why people can be combative, mm -hmm. but I think lack of REM sleep is one of the main reasons that we feel irritable, easily set off. Um, there, there are a number of very powerful things that happen in REM sleep that we should all be seeking. So if you wake up in the middle of the night, you really do want to try and get back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And then as the night goes on, you're spending more, a greater por proportion, excuse me, of your sleep in that rapid eye movement sleep. And those are when you have your 
very rich dreams. And when you wake up, oftentimes spending some time with a pad and paper, maybe while you're getting your afternoon, your outdoor sunlight um, is a great thing because you'll remember components of your dreams. The meaning of dreams has had, uh, you know, has been debated for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, and I think you, I think Matt would agree, Matt Walker would agree that some dreams do have tremendous significance. Others do not. Um, there seems to be a very powerful effect of having a dream that makes people want to tell someone else their dream. Mm, like we have this need, I think we just have this need to want to put structure on something that seems very unstructured. It is a way, in a sense, when we're dreaming, we're, we're crazy. Like space and time <laughs> are completely fluid. Everything's, yeah. anything could happen. And when we have a dream that feels powerful to us, I think we we understandably want to put some sort of interpretation meaning, on meaning it. Meaning behind it. Yeah. I've had uh, great insights through dreams. Um, I've also had a lot of dreams that got me nothing. Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night and I tend to write things down that come to really? mind. I achieve my greatest clarity for kind of psychological and relational things. When I wake up first, you know, immediately I'll, I'll have a solution in my head or I'll think I'm, you know, the other day this happened. I've, I've been... Uh, as we were talking about before the the recording, I, I've been working through a, a very complex set of of personal interactions, and these are these are not traumatic or anything like that. But I've been working with somebody to try and resolve a really hard problem that we have, and we are both committed to solving this problem. And I'll chip away at this and chip away at this, and they are much smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I'm struggling, and then I will go to sleep, and I'll wake up at three in the morning, and boom, the answer, at least to whatever it is that I'm trying to resolve is right there. And I think it's because in sleep, you're trying, you're getting those repeats of the different circuits. They're practicing, you're rehearsing things you learned during the day. You're dumping the emotional load through this trauma release type mechanism of REM Mm. sleep. And then answers just kind of geyser up to the top. But again, I'm, I'm speculating. What we do know at the neural level is that there's a replay of the neurons that were active during the day in sleep, but at much more rapid rates. Stuff, a lot of stuff we won't remember. That's what you're saying. We much won't. of sleep is there. Much of the dreaming and sleep is designed to get you to forget things that are meaningless. What is happening to the brain as you're sleeping? Is it just connecting neurons? Is it flushing? Is it, you know, creating these images for you to remember? What's like the, what's the actual mechanics of it? Yeah. So several things are happening. One is this glymphatic washout. Yeah. There's this literally like a spin cycle on the brain of dumping all the, that's the why junk. You, that's why that's you why want your, your feet up. elevated, okay. right? So why you want your sleep. That's why you want your feet elevated. The glymphatic washout is one. The other is adenosine, this molecule that accumulates the longer that we are awake. That actually gets reduced during sleep so that mm-hmm. we can wake up feeling rested. Okay. In other words, if you've been up for a day and a half, you've got tons of adenosine in your system. Caffeine of any kind is an adenosine blocks adenosine function. I want to be careful because it's not actually an antagonist. It's a competitive agonist for the aficionados. But you're basically reducing adenosine function with caffeine. When you sleep, you reduce adenosine, which is why I delay my caffeine 90 to 120 mm-hmm. minutes after waking up. Yeah. So you've got adenosine getting pushed back down. You've got the glymphatic system washout. You have reordering of neurons and creation of new connections so that what you couldn't do previously you can do the next day and the next day. You're learning. The trigger for learning occurs during wakefulness through focused, alert, motivated states. The actual rewiring of neurons, meaning the changes in the connections, occurs during sleep, in particular, deep sleep. So 
A lot's happening in there. And during rapid eye movement sleep, the brain is incredibly metabolically active. It's just that the body is paralyzed. And some people experience this invasion of that sleep paralysis into, into the wakeful period. It's really scary. I've had this happen. You wake up and you're still totally paralyzed and you jolt out. Terrifying. You can't move. I feel like I'm screaming, but nothing's coming out. It's really terrifying. 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 That's called what? Sleep paralysis? Uh, Yes, essentially. But that's an invasion of of sleep paralysis into the waking It's like wake paralysis. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you're not a pot smoker, but many pot smokers uh, experience that more often than non-pot smokers for reasons that probably relate to the serotonin system and the so-called atonia, the inability to move. Interesting. So there's that. Uh, what else happens during sleep? Well, there's all sorts of interesting resetting of the digestive system, the microbiome. Are your muscles yeah. growing or? Muscle growth probably occurs throughout the 24-hour cycle, but a lot of repair of muscles yeah. and triggering of muscle growth probably occur during sleep. Sure. I, I, he's passed now. Um, he was 11 years old when I had to put him down, but I had this bulldog, Costello. He was a 90-pound English uh, oh. bulldog mastiff. When he was a puppy, I would take a picture of him and then the next day, I'd take a picture of it when he was larger the next day that's after crazy. sleep. Well, they're just growing at such a tremendous rate, right? And that's growth hormone. And during puberty, sometimes kids will be kind of locked up during sleep. You'll go in and see a kid sleeping. They'll be in some weird position. They'll get growing pains because actually the bones, you know, it's a lot to orchestrate the yes. growth of the bones and the connective tissue and the brain and all that. It's not always perfect. And so sometimes there's a few days where... Things are a little out of whack. I remember for months, my knees would hurt when I was a teenager. Yeah, and kids, uh, my dad used to come in and push my knees down because he was worried that something was going on. That's the growing, you're growing. You're growing. You're growing. Bones are like spreading, right? That's right. They're psychological growing pains and they're physical growing pains. And in your case, there was a lot of growing. A lot of physical growing. I'm not, I'm not short. I'm I'm 6'1", but you're... 6'4". Yeah, you're you're, you're a tower. Maybe 6'5", maybe. So, yeah. um, Wow. So the... There's a lot of stuff going on in sleep. And are you burning a lot of fat too during sleep? Yeah, a lot of metabolism is happening during sleep. There's a beautiful paper that just came out. Gosh, uh, I I forget all the micro details, so I'm only going to say a little bit about it. But a lot of the the removal of fat from the body from when we burn fat is actually done through the breath. We exhale. There's a carbon dioxide component. Isn't that interesting? It's a sweat in the breath, right? And then what? Just... Uh, not so much, um, not, not so much fecal elimination, but more uh, the your breathing. Out. Breathing burns more fat than. Well, no, no, sorry, elimination of fat from the body if it's going to occur. Because I have to be careful because the nutrition crowd online, uh-huh. they, they have claws, pitchforks, and and they, <laughs> they like come to after you. And they're and they're ready fire aim type yeah, yeah. Uh, trigger. You happy. said this yeah. exactly. So I want to be very clear. I believe in calories in, calories out. Yes. As a basic principle. There, you know, there are people out there arguing different, but basically if you ingest more calories than you burn, you're going to gain, gain weight. weight. If you keep them more or less equal, you're going to maintain. And if you burn more than you ingest, you're going to lose weight. Yeah. Okay. Whether or not you lose from muscle fat or other body compartments is a different story, but the utilization of fat as an energy source and the elimination of adipose tissue of body fat eventually boils down to something where you, yes, indeed you are exhaling the, the eventual molecules, okay? But crazy. It, among other, uh, there are some other routes as well. I mean, how, much, a, how much fat are we exhaling a week? Well, it depends on whether or not you're in a caloric deficit or not. If we're in a deficit, are we, then we're exhaling that fat? Essentially, well, but it's been broken down into a number of different metabolic right, right, components. Right, right. That's crazy, It's it? really wild to think about. 
Well, if you think, yeah, and you might think, well, why not just remove it through the digestive tract? But it's part of a whole lipolysis, meaning the, the utilization of fat for energy, mm. the lipolysis cycle and an energy cycle. You know, if, if those of you that um, uh, enjoyed or suffered through college or high school, you know, the Krebs cycle and ATP and ATP production and the mitochondria and cells and so forth. That was a whole business there. Yeah. But um, so in sleep, this paper shows that, you know, each stage of sleep is actually associated with a different mode of energy utilization and carbon dioxide offloading and so forth. Or in the last episode, we talked about ideally you're, you are nose breathing during sleep. You are not mouth breathing. So some people actually will tape, shut their mouth with a little bit of medical tape. Huge benefits to that for getting enhanced oxygenation of the brain and body. You do not want to have sleep apnea. Sleep mm -hmm. apnea is associated with sexual side effects in men and women. It's associated with... Um, cardiac arrest, it's associated with a number of bad things. A lot of people who are carrying a lot of extra weight who sleep on their back or even just who are carrying a lot of extra weight, unfortunately, they have a buildup of carbon dioxide in their system uh -huh. at night, especially if they're mouth breathing and they wake up not feeling rested um, in all individuals, regardless of, of um, you know, phenotype, as we say, um, their genotypes and their phenotypes, right. regardless of phenotype, the kind of droopiness and the bagging of the eyes that can occur from sleep apnea oh. and the effects on. So get become a nose breather. We talked about that in the last episode, how mm -hmm. to become a nose breather, but you want to nose breathe during sleep if you can. Yes. Yes. And your partner will thank you too because you're not snoring as much. <laughs> um, Are you no, do you nose breathe at sleep? I think I do. Yeah. I think I do. Uh, I, I'm told I snore a little bit right. from time to time. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, um, even people who aren't carrying a lot of fat, but people who are carrying a lot of muscle, who sleep on their back, oftentimes they are, they are kind of suffocating during sleep. Every time I hear about a, a bodybuilder or a very large athlete dying, it's almost always a heart attack during sleep. They're and, on their back. And, or their side, but they're, they're asphyxiating. And the relate, there's a beautiful relationship between breathing and heart rate. Very oh. it, it simply, when you inhale, your heart rate goes up. And when you exhale, your heart rate goes down. Wow. And this has to do with the movement of the diaphragm and the change of the shape of the heart and signals from the brain. I won't go into all that. But when you inhale, your heart rate speeds up. And when you exhale, it slows down. And that's respiratory sinus arrhythmia for the, for the aficionados. So, okay. you know, you want to create a, an environment around your sleep where it's dim lights in the evening. You've had your meal, maybe a cup of chamomile tea towards sleep. Maybe you use supplements, right. maybe you don't. You wake up get sunlight in your eyes. This is the kind of landscape you want to create. Sure. Cool room. You want to avoid very stimulating stuff, conversations and activity, you know, right before sleep. Yeah. Now, some stimulating activities before sleep, we won't go into details, <laughs> have a rebound effect afterwards. Matthew Walker's actually talked about this, how certain types of activities cause a rebound in relax, you know, they're very- So sexual activities. Yes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be, <laughs> yes. be vague here. Yes. I'm just- uh, What does that do for sleep if you have uh, sexual activities before sleep? So sexual activity in, includes, a, it's, it's really remarkable uh, at the level of autonomic nervous system. So sexual activity involves an increase at first in the so-called parasympathetic arm of the autonomic nervous system, the relaxation system. Mm. But then it involves increases in the sympathetic arm of, uh -huh. the, of, the, of the autonomic nervous system. And orgasm in men and women is actually purely driven by the sympathetic nervous system, the stress system. Huh. It's okay. a, and then the post-coital period is when the parasympathetic nervous system kicks back on and there's a deep relaxation. 
So is it good to have sexual activity before bed or, or not that good? According to the architecture of what I just described, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, it, it's good? Yes, it's good. Yes, it's good. Um, yes, it's good. It helps right, people right. sleep. And Matt, actually, when Matt Walker came on my podcast, we talked a little bit about some of the data on this. Now, even um, hmm. th- then, you know, so there are all sorts of questions about this that are now co- coming out. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about studying sex in the laboratory is very hard to do, right? I mean, there are ethical reasons, there, right. there are complicated right. reasons, and good studies have to be done in laboratories or by self-report. And with self-report, people lie. Right, 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 and make right. up stories in one direction or the other. Sure. They're doing more of what they would like to be, they're either reporting more of what they'd like to be reporting of or less of what they would like to be reporting less of. But doing those sorts of studies in the laboratory is very difficult. There are sleep laboratories, but it's not often that couples are coming in and staying in those sleep laboratories together, although that does happen from time to time. Mm-hmm. But yes, after sex, there's a rebound in the parasympathetic nervous system, which is a deeply re- relaxing component of the nervous system. Right. And wow. the, the reasons for that aren't clear. I mean, one idea is that it's designed to put people in close proximity, not just run off and look for another mate immediately, and to smell each other and pair bond through some of the pheromonal systems. Mm. Yeah. Powerful. But, yeah. Yes, very powerful. <laughs> um, an interesting form of a pre-sleep, uh, you know, um, biology, for sure. And one that, let's be fair, as we were talking about during the break, every species has two main goals, to protect its young and to make more of itself. And while not all sex is designed for reproduction or used for reproduction, I mean, the the whole architecture of the reproductive axis, right. as we say, from brain down to genitals, is designed for that arc of uh-huh. parasympathetic, sympathetic, and then paras- parasympathetic. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, and the duration of that varies between individuals. Okay. Right, that was a joke. <laughs> yeah. You got to go at least 10 minutes to get the full effects. I'm not setting the parameters <laughs> that people should or should not follow. That is not my domain. Uh, this is powerful stuff, man. I'm so I'm so grateful for your wisdom, as always. Um, Huberman Lab, make sure you guys check out the podcast. One of the top podcasts in the world right now. It's incredible. People love the science. They love the neuroscience, what you're teaching over there. You got a lot of great stuff about brain states around fear, courage, anxiety, calm, how we can better move into and out of them through visual cues, breath work, movement, supplementation, and all sorts of great stuff. Amazing research. Uh, HubermanLab.com. Huberman Lab everywhere on social media. You go live on Instagram. You post on the podcast every week, YouTube. Lots of great stuff. We were talking about this before, and I think this could be a good segue about sex at night. I want to do a whole another episode on relationships and neuroscience around relationships and intimacy. I think it'll be a fascinating conversation. Marriage, relationships, dating, all that. So if you guys want that conversation from Andrew, then leave a hashtag in the comments below, relationships. And we'll see on YouTube if uh, how many people want to really see that information. And if you're on the podcast, just DM us or post us over on Instagram and tag us both. If you want to learn more about the science and neuroscience behind relationships, intimacy, all that stuff. I think it'd be fascinating. Have you done an episode on this yet? I have not. And I think that powerful. there's a lot of really great biology, both about sex and reproduction and about relationships, um, parent-child, yes. couple relationships. Um, uh, the biology of breakups is really oh, interesting. Oh, that'd be huge. Um, and there's some really interesting data on uh, you know, how relationships 
change over time according to changes in biology in individuals because oh we all change over time and not necessarily for the worse. You, right. The data, just to throw out a little teaser, you know, there's this idea that testosterone levels drop with age. The data on this say that there are, there are people uh, in their 70s who maintain testosterone levels. And this, men and women both have testosterone. It serves similar roles in both, although different at the level of the right. body, but at the level of the brain is what I'm referring to. Um, that mimic the the levels that were present in their 20s and so really? yeah so it has a lot to do with how people sleep probably sleep how they <laughs> yeah. uh, certainly um stress the their behavior okay. but also um there's a strong psychological component related to self-image that's super interesting so we could talk about that as well dude this is fascinating i'm so pumped for this um, yeah, keep this information for the next time. Oh, this yeah, is going to be I, good. I won't put it out there. My hey, man, thanks appreciate so you. Thanks so much. Thanks, brother. Really appreciate you, Lewis. I hope today's episode inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a rundown of today's show with all the important links. And if you want weekly exclusive bonus episodes with me as well as ad-free listening experience, make sure to subscribe to our Greatness Plus channel on Apple Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend over on social media or text a friend, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts and let me know what you learned over on our social media channels at Lewis House. I really love hearing the feedback from you and it helps us continue to make the show better. And if you want more inspiration from our world-class guests and content to learn how to improve the quality of your life, then make sure to sign up for the Greatness Newsletter and get it delivered right to your inbox over at greatness.com newsletter. And if no one has told you today, I want to remind you that you are loved you are worthy and you matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life, don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and not a yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.